This is On Being's Unheard Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with theoretical physicist and novelist Jan Levin. I spoke with her on November 15, 2007, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in a private recording studio in New York City. This interview is included in our show, Mathematics, Purpose, and Truth. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Um... Sam, they're saying, Sam, they're saying, yeah, I think we probably need to turn my vo- my headphone volume down a little bit. Okay. Um, Jenna, why don't you tell me, oh, I'm hearing an echo too. All right. Um, oh, we're echoing off of each other? Well, I, it, it, are you still echoing? I just turned my headphone volume down and that may, be, let me see. That may do the trick um, for me as well. Okay, let me see. Am I echoing? No, I think my echo's gone. Okay. Um, I'm sounding better too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, uh, tell me something uh, mundane like what you had for lunch, so that we can get levels oh, on you. Oh, sad! I missed lunch. Uh, <laughs> I had a nauseating cab ride from uh, uptown to downtown instead, in lieu of lunch. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's <all> right. <laughs> I've recovered. Okay. Uh, Paul gave me a nice cup of tea, uh, so I'm all, I'm all better. Okay. Um, do you have any questions of me before mm. we start? Well, I just, um, I guess just roughly what, what you think we'll cover. I mean, nothing in detail. I don't want to preempt anything, mm-hmm. but just um, roughly think we'll talk mostly about uh, the book or all kinds of topics in science. I just, um, actually, I forgot to ask that before. I want, I want to jump <clears throat> off the book. And okay. uh, I, I love the book. I think it's okay. fantastic. And, uh, no, and there's you. a lot in there to talk about. And, and, um, and I, I suppose I want to... But I want to do this organically. I want to also delve a little bit deeper into the glimpses you give in the book of, you know, where you stand looking at all of this and how it changes okay. you to think about this way. And and I also just want to talk about, you know, the work you do and what you're discovering now. <clears throat> okay, well, sounds great. Yeah, okay. Okay. Have you heard uh, the show? <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry to say I haven't heard the show. You know, I'm a little technologically challenged at the moment. Are you? Both television and radio. <laughs> Okay. Um, All right. Well, I, I'm I'm listening to things online, but I will okay. I will tune in. I, well, I was checking out your website mm-hmm. and I saw some of the kinds of topics you were covering. Yeah, I mean I've, inter- um, I saw I've interviewed um, George Ellis, and uh, I saw him mm-hmm. that you mentioned him in your work, and Freeman Dyson, and lots of yeah, science, pretty, science, pretty great, interesting great people. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and now I'm hearing <clears throat> a little bit of an echo still. Oh, okay. I wonder if um, at that end they could turn down the. Right, I guess if I move away a bit. <coughs> Sam, how are we sounding? Uh, Jenna, how, how is Kristen's level in your headphones? Pretty good. Is, it sounds sound, good. Does it sound loud? Or is that, if I turn it down just a little, you're going to hear her? I could, I could, yeah, I think Let's so. Let's try that and see okay. if that helps her. Okay, and you have young children, don't you? Right? Yeah, I have a four-year-old and a 15-month-old. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so I want to start with a question about childhood, which may be even more resonant for you since you're living with children. Um, okay. Uh, Sam, can we start? Are we rolling? Okay. Um, just that, you know, um, many people talk about childhood as a time when we all start to ask, for the first time, we ask these great existential questions. You know, even Einstein talked mm-hmm. about childhood as a time when he asked posed some of the big questions that he then refined and delved into the rest of his life and you know it seems to me that the field of cosmology is really so rich with um uh, you know in some ways with these grand existential questions like how did how did this all happen how did we get mm-hmm. here and i just wonder if you look back um to your childhood do you can you trace your curiosity um 
in a, in a rudimentary form to some of the things that, that fascinate you now? Oh, absolutely. I remember asking questions like that uh, about the origin of the universe and, and what we were doing here and what it meant to be part of the cosmos. Mm. I, I didn't think I would go on to be a scientist. In fact, I started as a philosophy major in college. Right. And I was, um, I was very negative about um, physics especially. Mm. I had no physics experience whatsoever, but I had this kind of comical stereotype of physicists memorizing things and, um, and being kind of rote. And I was, thought philosophy was after the big questions. Right. And it was, it's very ironic when I look back at my childhood that I was absolutely mesmerized by cosmology and astronomy, um, even um, evolutionary science, ideas of natural selection. Mm-hmm. They had always uh, captured my imagination and, um, and were these gratifying sort of ways to think about the world, even if I didn't always understand the answers. It was sort of really a way to think about the world. Was there science being discussed in your home? Yeah, my father is an MD, and he, for a few years, was doing research science, um, medical research, and um, he always talked a lot about sort of scientific explanations for things. You couldn't, you know, say uh, you smelled something without it being a discussion about the molecules, (laughs) you know, the neurons firing and how neurons worked. And um, so it was kind of a natural way to talk in the house, although, again, I didn't over um, analyze that as a child. My mother was very literary and, and read lots of books and was not at all scientifically inclined. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't sense that my house had a sort of predominantly science right. um, was there uh, approach. A, was there a religious background? Um, no. No. Okay. Um, you know, in a sense, my grandparents were um, – I shouldn't say no so abruptly. <laughs> my grandparents were immigrants, Jewish immigrants um, from Europe and, and Eastern Europe. And they grew up with a strong religious tradition. And my parents um, grew up speaking Yiddish. And, um, mm. and my grandparents kept kosher until uh, later in their lives when they kind of gave that up. So there was a sense of tradition, very strong tradition and a very strong sense of our European history and our Jewish history. But um, but I myself was never brought to temple. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I didn't have a bat mitzvah and I didn't practice um, Judaism, actually, okay. I would have to say. And, I mean, tell me how you made that transition. When you went to college and you were studying philosophy, how did you get captured by theoretical physics? It's funny. I, I was asked to write something about that recently, so it's sort of fresh in my mind, <laughs> okay. revisiting um, that time. And um, I was sort of in denial, I think, about my interest in science. Even though I was a philosophy major, um, you have to take one science requirement. But um, I kept taking science requirements. <laughs> okay. So I, I kept going. I kept taking chemistry. And then I took organic chemistry, and, and, and I started taking calculus. And um, I, I think I hadn't really admitted to myself that I actually had loved science. And then I was in a philosophy class, and I, um, I was uh, sort of impressed with the subject. We were talking about a lot of interesting things, free will and determinism, um, what it means to say we're free in a world that's completely causally, physically determined. And there were all these very deep questions. And one day a scientist came in to give a guest lecture. And they started to discuss something about quantum mechanics. And everybody in the room got very quiet. And they discussed things about Einstein. And what I was most impressed with is that philosophers didn't know how to respond. So I thought it was powerful. And I Mm. became interested in physics. And I think that this book you've written um, about Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing, you know, in many ways, is very much takes place very much at that intersection where philosophical questions meet scientific inquiry and scientific truth. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, yeah, I definitely came back round again. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some sense, I came full circle again to start asking those philosophical questions, I mm-hmm. think. I mean, because this kind of, this basic question, I mean, let's start with Kurt Gödel um, about truth, right? And I mean, I want you to put this into mm-hmm. your own words, because I, I can't say that I, I can completely wrap my mind around it, but I'm mm-hmm. utterly intrigued with it. You know, mm-hmm. that, that truth... Um, Will ultimate, would ultimately elude us, that, that mm-hmm. some mathematical truths can't be proven within the realm of mathematics, which doesn't necessarily mean they're not true, <laughs> right? Yes, that's right. But that yeah. mathematics itself can't demonstrate their truth. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was um, a time in history when most mathematicians, I think it would be fair to say, believed that mathematics could address every mathematical proposition. And that's a fair enough thing to believe in retrospect. Why shouldn't mathematics be able to prove every true mathematical fact? Mm -hmm. So when Gödel came along and he found a very surreal kind of tangle, a mathematical proposition that makes a peculiar claim about itself, which cannot be proven within the context of uh, arithmetic. It was in the context of arithmetic that he did this. Um, It really shocked people. It really shook them up. And I think the way you said it is actually Actually, the clearest and, and nicest way to say it, there are some truths that can never be proven to be true. And, um, and it opens up this idea, which terrified people, that there are limits to what we can ever know. Hmm. Hmm. And, and it's not the first time it happened. If you think about Einstein's theory of special relativity, um, it was a similar idea. There are limits to how fast we can ever travel. We're limited by the speed of light. Um, there are limits in quantum mechanics to how much we can ever really know. There are fundamental limits um, to certainty. And this all sort of happened around the same period of time that we began to accept this. And, you know, there's, there's a scene in, in the book. You, I'll, I'm sure I'll be setting this up in the radio show. But, you know, basically mm-hmm. you, you tell the stories of Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing kind of in parallel. Um, although and, – and they didn't meet, but their stories intersected and some of the people who influenced them and who they influenced intersected. And um, – you have a lot of scenes with Gödel uh, in Vienna, early 1930s Vienna, in a coffee house and a famous kind of intellectual gathering, which was called the Vienna Circle. Um, and there, there's a scene where you have, uh, there's a, this mathematician, Olga Hahn Neurath, and her husband, Otto, who's a socialist. And I mean, these are just some of the people. Moritz Schlick mm-hmm. was a philosopher and a logician who kind of headed this. And they often just come back to Wittgenstein's premise, his first premise in his famous Tractatus, that the world is all that is the case, which, which is a statement about some, you know, a basic thing that we can know as real. And mm-hmm. you have this moment where Gödel challenges this, and he's been thinking about this and coming up with this theory that you described. Um, and I have to say, you know, in the story, in the novel, all the members of this circle who were sitting at the table with him start to question almost whether they themselves are real, whether the person who's sitting across the table from them is real. And as a reader, I had that same experience. And I w- just, That's beautiful. It's yeah. wonderful. And so, I mean, I wonder if you would kind of describe uh, that scene the way you envisioned it and, and, mm-hmm. and what's happening there for you. Well, I really hoped that the reader would have that experience because ultimately I think that's where the book nudges. Do you mm-hmm. know that um, 
any of this is real, that the book isn't a figment of your imagination. Even the book itself, right? The book itself, that somehow you Uh aren't the author of the book itself. (laughs) And and so he was definitely pushing on that limit of what do we know and what don't we know? What do we take to be faith? What's rational to believe? What's not rational to believe? And what is Um, it that he says and and how is it that it is so shattering, you know, to them and to us? mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. There's a little twist there, which is that um, Gödel, even though he proved something which is uh, absolutely correct about mathematics, had beliefs which most people do not take to be true and (laughs) and struggle with. So his his mathematics is confirmed and everyone agrees is – was tremendous. And yet, when we look at his ideas about the transmigration of the soul and his ideas about external reality being questionable, he really was suspicious about an external reality. The only reality he trusted was the mathematical reality he could kind of probe logically. Numbers were more real than possibly the person sitting across the table from him. That's right. That's right. He Mm -hmm. believed that numbers were more convincingly real than, um, than, uh, you know, the idea that the sun was real when it was when it, when you couldn't see it anymore after it had set, and um, and so his idea about an empirical reality was 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 strange. Was he he wasn't sure it was he could believe in it, and um, and most people I think um, aren't struggling with those issues, and so find find it hard to follow Gödel down that path, mm-hmm. and um, and yet his mathematics was absolutely sound and shattering. And I think at some stage I realized that what I was writing about wasn't so much mathematics. What I was really writing about, which I think you've struck on, is um, is belief. Mm-hmm. What Gödel believed, what um, the people in the Vienna Circle believed, how they all ultimately struggled with different ideas about reality, um, and um, and and there's this sort of surreal vagueness to our conclusions. You know, you you write of both Gödel and Turing that. Um that they were besotted with mathematics. And, and I have to say that I, I feel that you, um, I don't know if you're completely like them in that way, but that you have a real sympathy for that, you know, the way you seem to delight in just in the way they, they live with mathematics and wrestle with it. And um, I mean, is that, is that true? I mean, I mean, for you, are numbers, yeah. are, are numbers maybe not more real than the sun and the earth, but as real as the sun and the earth? And, and you know, if so what, is, what does that mean exactly? How would you explain that? Well, I would that? absolutely say I am also besotted with mathematics. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about what's real and not real in the way that, that maybe Gödel did. I think what Turing did, which was so beautiful, was to have a very practical approach to, to uh, answering these questions that he didn't get lost in philosophical absolutes okay. or f- even philosophical vagaries. He believed that um, that life was sort of in a way simple and you could just you could you could relate to mathematics in a concrete and practical way and it wasn't all about surreal abstract theories and that's why Turing is the one who invents the computer mm-hmm. because he thinks so practically he can imagine a machine which which adds and subtracts a machine which performs the mathematical operations that the mind performs and so he really imagines a mind that's mechanized in an electromechanical kind of computer and um, and then he makes it you know essentially a reality. And the modern computers that we have now um, are these very practical machines that are built on on those ideas. And so um, I would say that like Turing, 
I am absolutely struck with the power of mathematics, and that's why I'm a theoretical physicist. If I want to answer questions, I love that we can all share the mathematical answers. It's not about me trying to convince you of what I believe or of my perspective or of my um, sort of assumptions. We can all agree that one plus one is two, and we can all make calculations that come out to be the same, whether you're from India or Pakistan or you know mm. Oklahoma. Right. We all have that in common, and so there's something about that that's deeply moving to me. Um, and that makes mathematics pure and special. And yet I'm able to have a more practical attitude about it, which is that, well, we can build machines this way. And there is a physical reality that we can relate to um, using mathematics. But Turing also, in his own way, um, explored the limits of our ability to know and prove what is true. Didn't he? I mean, is that he did. a fair statement? Yes. He went beyond Godel even and realized that in a sense, most numbers um, aren't numbers about which we can know anything. <laughs> and that seems very confusing. It seems like we know a lot of numbers. Right. One, two, three, right. four, five. It seems like we know infinite lists of numbers. What um, Turing showed is that there are numbers uh, which are so long, if I imagine them as a decimal point with a list of digits, that that list of digits is infinite and essentially random. And there are numbers about which we will never know anything. And it leads to very um, strange things, which even sometimes I think about in my own research, which is, um, are those numbers real in any sense, or are they just uh, a mathematical construction? Is there no physical object which will ever be described by such a, an, mm. what he called, uncomputable number? Hmm. I was very interested also that you wrote that even, I mean, Turing is known as the father of modern computing, and yet, of course, lot many people and developments played into that, into what we have today. Um, you wrote, though, that, that he, um, he wanted to, in, to design machines that could think. And for, the, for him, even, at, in that very early stage, he wasn't, he wasn't just talking about mm, computers that would have knowledge programmed in that would be able to play chess. Um, which mm-hmm. is, in fact, the way the field of artificial intelligence really um, began in many ways, really was for a few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but he actually had the vision towards which a lot of artificial intelligence I know at MIT is moving, which is create to, that what we what we want to do is create computers that can think, that can learn the way human mm-hmm. beings learn. I wonder if you uh, had any thoughts about why that uh, about that you know, that development, that, that contradiction in what he believed and then the way the field developed. Well, there is a really interesting point that can be found in a way in their discoveries. So um, if you think of mathematics as a rigid system where you have some rules and you start at some starting point and you always follow those rules to generate theorems, that is essentially what a formal mathematical system is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can prove that there are true facts that can never be reached by such a formal process, um, then any computer that you program in that way by just teaching it a handful of rules, um, no matter how many rules you do teach it, it will only be able to um, do a certain limited number of things. It can never uh, prove these kinds of unprovable statements. Mm. Fine. But the difference between the human mind is I can recognize the truth of a statement even if I can't prove it. (laughs) And that is something that I can't do if I only program a rigid system to follow rigid rules. And so our minds seem to be doing something that's different than what a formal mathematical system does. 
And so it's very in, in, rooted in their theories, um, the things that both Gödel and Turing proved, that if I only program a computer in this way, I can never get it to do the things that a mind can do. And they knew that. Um, I think Gödel said that um, he imagined an artificial intelligence evolving, not so much being programmed. Right. And that that's, in a sense, how the human mind develops. Maybe there are simple rules that it's following, but the evolution becomes so complex that no one person could have sat down and coded it. It had to have become a very complex process that evolved in a very complex way to um, evolve a complex intelligence. Hmm. And so I think one of the interesting ideas in artificial intelligence is to try to do something similarly. Um, start a digital organism, so to speak, in a digital ecology and see if you can't evolve an intelligence. Um, and it and it is true. I think you mentioned that um, that Gödel believed in the transmigration of souls, but Turing, by contrast, um, lost a faith that he did have early in life, and he really came to think of us as human beings as kind of biological machines. Yeah, I think that was a very important moment for Turing, and um, and I tried to describe it very sympathetically. I think there's mm-hmm. a a lot of feeling that if somebody loses the uh, their religious faith that that it would be this dark and horrible moment it would it could only be associated with a kind of tragedy or or despair and I wanted to explain his as describe his as being a beautiful moment for him because he had been grappling with such inconsistency mm-hmm. between his logical naturalist approach to the world which which was verifiable which he really did deeply relate to which was everything to him and his religious um, disposition which wasn't gelling with the former with this naturalist approach and he just couldn't get them together and I think there was a constant rub and feeling of discomfort and struggle with it and when he accepted a more materialist approach in the sense of there's just nature, there's just mathematics, there's just this sort of organic um, reality that he became freer and, and happier and his life became easier. And it was a beautiful moment for him. But it was, it was also beautiful, I sense, because mathematics itself I and mean, what he did consider to be real and true had, had almost a kind of transcendent quality. Yeah, I think that that's true. What the kinds of questions he was approaching and the the things he was thinking about were meaningful, and so I think that's another uh, thing I really wanted to convey is that is that it wasn't this meaningless moment of there's nothing and there's no meaning and 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 there's no purpose and and uh, it's all darkness. It was really quite the opposite. He was getting a lot of meaning from his um, mathematical approach to the world. He was getting his sense of connectedness, his, um, his sense of purpose. So all those things that he had originally maybe been looking for in, in religion, he was finding in his um, science. Right. And, you know, initially you mentioned the word beauty. And, and I have to say that something that's always fascinated me in conversation with scientists and I'm thinking of George Ellis, the cosmologist, as one example where I really can hear his voice again. That that beauty, the beauty of of a mathematical equation. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny. I think uh, 
The scientists are the last ones to get away with talking about beauty. I don't think um, artists with a straight face can really talk about beauty anymore. It's just, it's not chic. <laughs> no. Right. And um, not even writers can talk about beauty. It seems corny. And so only scientists can, with a straight face, talk about things being beautiful, being seriously motivated by aesthetics, and having it actually pan out. I mean, that's quite remarkable is that people have literally pursued theories because they're more beautiful hmm. and more elegant. And they make predictions that are later verified in experiments. So it's it's a fascinating um, question. Why is beauty an actually good way of devising um, our ideas about the universe? Why are they confirmed by nature? Why does nature choose um, beautiful uh, 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 ways of of unraveling? And I mean, you know, um, just you know, echoing what we were speaking about earlier mm-hmm. on about you know truth and you know getting back to Gödel and Turing. I mean, I remember um, someone saying to me, and maybe it was George Ellis, maybe it was John Polkinghorne, the physicist, saying, you know, if an equation is not elegant and beautiful, it is likely not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that does seem to be the case. I mean, you could say we can't recognize things that aren't beautiful, but it's really deeper than that. It's really deeper than saying, oh, I only picked out the pattern. Mm -hmm. You can imagine um, uh, the particles of the universe falling into a symmetric pattern as one um, particle physicist did, and one was missing from this beautiful symmetric arrangement, and he conjectured the existence of that particle, and lo and behold, it was confirmed. So it's really something more than just saying, oh, we can only pull out the pattern and we miss everything else. I wonder, I know that you, so you're a a scientist. You've also written a novel. You are an artist, a visual artist. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, well, <laughs> I've, I've had my experiments. I used to I used to do a lot of visual arts, but I wouldn't have said I was an artist. It was more a hobby, and I have spent time in art schools um, mm-hmm. as a scientist in residence or doing art critique, and I've written a lot for artists mm-hmm. um, for various catalogs, for exhibits, and, and that sort of, um, and books and things. I mean... You know, here's something else I know without understanding um, that numbers, that mathematics um, is also in some deep way behind music and, 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 um, and drawing and art, right? Well, <laughs> you can definitely make the case for, for music. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, musical scales are, are based on mathematical structures, and um, even the idea of a harmonic is has a really easy description in mathematics. And some fundamental theories about about the universe being really made up of strings and not particles is related to similar ideas about harmonics mm-hmm. um, that you can pluck on a fundamental string to create the whole spectrum of, of the universe that we see. That's so um, fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but again, you, you, know, you can get caught up in the idea of beauty when it's not verified experimentally. So we can sometimes become intoxicated with how beautiful an idea is and not be able to let it go, um, even if it isn't verified. So we have to keep ourselves in check, mm-hmm. I think. But um, didn't I see... Now, I was looking around, and I, I'm not sure I knew exactly where to look for your art, um, there was something I saw again. I was I was I was being technologically challenged in this case. I was having trouble uh, getting something to size on my computer. I think mm-hmm. it was a picture you had drawn. I believe this was on your website. And oh, I did have um, some drawings yeah. um, in some contributions, but I should qualify those. So I've done um, 
a lot of drawing, mm-hmm. but that's not probably what you were going to pull up on your website. You were probably on the, on the website link that you had. I was probably, um, I, I think what you were linking to was a contribution to something called the Big Draw. The Big Draw is something they do in England, and I think they do it other places too, but um, it might be once a year now that they have a bunch of artists contribute drawings, and some are comic artists and illustrators, and um, David Hockney. And this Hockney was more along Simon. those lines, wasn't it? Well, I threw something in almost um, to be kind of not contentious, but just to kind of expand the conversation. So I threw in a piece of scratch paper from my calculations as my contribution. And they knew I could draw. I mean, I can technically draw. I could draw a figure or something, Mm -hmm. and I can do that. But but I thought it would be silly for me when there are all these artists contributing their drawings. I I thought what's more interesting is to discuss in that context – what drawing and visual representation um, mean in in a, the conversation of working out an idea, for instance, and mm-hmm. a lot of contemporary art is also interested in process and and exploring questions, and not so much again pretty pictures. So I think um, really contemporary artists loved this, thought it was really funny that I threw in a piece of scratch paper, and thought it was really beautiful. Um, right. But um, but but that was probably the kind of drawing you were pulling up. It was um, geometric shapes. Yeah, so I was. Mm-hmm. It was. It was from a piece, literally a piece of scratch paper, when I was calculating something about the shape of the universe. Yeah, when we're imagining <laughs> the universe in a series of sort of geometric tiles, and um, and uh, and and imagining the, the entire shape of space, basically, right. I think was what you pulled up. Uh, but but I mean that is. Um that is, uh, you, know, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I see this also as a way of, uh, that's also mathematics, right? It's not a rhythm. It's not numbers, but it's... Well, that's, yeah. I, then that's a very good question. People mm-hmm. often ask me, what do you mean different kinds of math? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not used to thinking about it, it sounds funny. What do you mean there are different kinds of math? None of them contradict each other, but there are different branches of mathematics. Some literally deal with numbers and number theory. Um, how numbers lay themselves out and, and what's hidden between zero and one. And you would not believe what's in there. It's quite fascinating what's in there. Um, there's an array of infinite numbers, very beautiful. And then there's something completely different like topology, which has to do with uh, the shape of spaces and the multi-connected possibilities of spaces. And um, there's all kinds of branches of mathematics. And that's your field, um, isn't it, topology? I've definitely used topology to ask questions about cosmology and the origin of the universe. Mm-hmm. So um, t- I, I talk to the mathematicians, the topologists who are making the discoveries, and we use those theories to um, imagine um, if our universe, for instance, is infinite or if it's finite. And if it's finite, what possible shapes could it have? And there's an infinite list of this sort of intriguing possibilities that arises, mm-hmm. and, um, and we use the mathematics to sort through so that we're not limited by our eyes, which will fail us, and we're not limited by um, our intuitions, which would also fail us. <laughs> so, you know, so one thing that I'm one place this is taking my mind is, um, you know, mathematics being behind um, the kind of hardest logic, the kind of hardest logic or mm. science that it seems human beings can conjure up and kind of show each other. And then mathematics in some way also being in the fabric, in the structure of art, which um, to me it conveys truths or true kinds of truth that science and facts and logic cannot. Hmm. Um, well, it's interesting. Obviously, I'm, I'm very intrigued by art 
and and the written word and um, things that you can do there that you can't do in a straightforward calculation. Um, but they're different things. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, I, I really do believe that they are different things. They might be approaching the same question from different sides, but they're definitely approaching from different sides. <laughs> so, um, so they don't give redundant or contradictory uh, pictures. So, for instance, I often get letters from people saying, I have a theory of the universe and it looks like this. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to explain what the difference is between saying, you know, I have a model and it's an origami picture and it looks like this and there's time going in this direction, between that and between something that's really motivated in mathematics. And the mathematics is something, again, that we can all verify. It's not about a weird dream I had or some fantastical picture or some gut feeling or some feeling in my solar plexus. Mm -hmm. It's something that is absolutely um, unambiguous. And I can't, for instance, write a paper until I've done that kind of a calculation, until my calculation is unambiguous and other people can check it. If I just have vague ideas or feelings about it, I can go years and not be able to write a paper on a subject. Um, So there's a difference between what we feel about things and what we're doing really in science when we're calculating things mathematically. And so I really separate those things. When I'm doing science, I want it to be kind of raw and hard and um, not at all flowery and um, rigid. And yet when I'm writing, I'm kind of going after the opposite. I want it to hit people in the solar plexus. I don't want them to walk away necessarily being able to recite a theorem. And I'm not even uh, disappointed if they don't fully understand the mathematics. What I want them to get is a feeling for the stakes, um, a feeling for, um, as you said, how these people were besotted by mathematics itself, how moved they were by the subject, how much it brought them away from other people people and away from reality, even as they were trying to understand reality and their place in the world. Um, so, uh, so I feel that they serve totally different purposes. Well, right, but uh, different purposes, but perhaps both important purposes. I mean, I, sure. I also sense that you're pursuing questions, beliefs, um, I don't know, hunches about the meaning of life or, or just about what matters to you um, in, a, in a form that those calculations simply can't contain or convey, that simply can't be captured in those, in numbers. You mean by writing a book, for Yeah, instance. by writing a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or being engaged with the arts. Right, so, right. Um, well, I think that's true. I think that um, the, uh, the answers that we're going to get, the discoveries that we're going to make are going to be in mathematics. But they're going to be meaningless to us unless they're integrated into a sort of human perspective where mm-hmm. we understand why we ask the questions, what the significance of the answers is for us, and... Um, and how the world is going to change as a result of having made those discoveries. Mm. So um, so I think that probably is true. I think that's why I can't quit one, become completely committed to the other, right. <laughs> right. and continue to sort of go back and forth <laughs> between the two subjects. I mean, I think that in many disciplines in Western culture, we are rediscovering the power of narrative, right? Um, in, it's happening in journalism. It's happening in economics. It ha- it's happening in theology. Um, and I feel like what you, you know, you, with this novel, um, A Mad Men Dreams of Turing Machines, you've, you've kind of, you've, you're doing, talking about science narratively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's another way of, you know, paraphrasing what you just said. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I really wanted um, 
the book to be as much about language as anything else, as mm-hmm. much about a visceral experience as anything else. I, I had considered writing a nonfiction book, but I just wanted to write something that was almost overwhelming in the actual experience of reading it that would be almost um, maybe unnerving and um, the language would be kind of over the top or hyper real or, or surreal. I'm not even sure which adjective is the right adjective. Yeah. And, um, and so that is all about um, the narrative and that is all about um, writing a narrative. And it's not so much about the specifics of the science. The fact that science is my subject is just the way it is for me. You know, some people will always write about domestic relationships and um, some people will always write about immigrants and some people, you know, we write about the things that uh, have shaped the way we view the world because that's, that's the way that as authors we're offering something, I think, unique mm-hmm. and um, genuine. And so for me, I just can't get away from the fact that that is how I view the world. And that's what I have in common with these two crazy guys. <laughs> it's why I have such sympathies for them. And even though I said, for instance, that Turing is the one in a way that I really do side with, I wanted to be very sympathetic in my representation of Gödel and even of Wittgenstein, who may have been a mystic, that it's not a matter of what, who I think is right or wrong. It's I wanted um, to air their whole complete sort of view of the world. You know, as a cosmologist, I think you have a more def- more detailed sense of the f- of the nature of time and space, um, and of how how generous and and um, fluid that is in a way that you know I think as opposed to what Einstein called the stubbornly persistent illusion that most of us have that it's time is this arrow of past, present, and future. <laughs> I, and I wonder if you think that gave gives you kind of an advantage as a novelist. Um, you know that you. When you're writing about these philosophical, existential, mathematical conversations around a table in Vienna in 1930, you you almost place yourself there, listening in on that conversation and taking part in it. And I just I wonder if if you think maybe that's in some way more real to you because of your science. Well, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's not a hard barrier that I'm up against. In other words, to imagine time as completely linear or rigid or ticking in a kind of regular way. And I I think the book is definitely parsed out in a way in which time is drawn out for one and and collapsed for the other. And so there is this feeling that 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 they're not experiencing the same passage of time and and the years are, are different and one is coming up to 1952 at the same time the other one's coming up to the 70s and yeah. and yet that should be natural that shouldn't feel so jarring you don't have to clock through you know in this rigid way so maybe um yeah maybe that's why i feel the discomfort with it it's it's possible but i think that's right the narrator in the book is kind of um able to be atemporal and place herself um, in these various scenes, as is the reader. And there's this moment, again, where the reader is asked to be the narrator, to be the observer, to conjure this up in their own minds, to try to understand the truth as best they can, and to know that they will always be slightly um, to the side of what of the mark, that they will always uh, kind of deform the truth under their own attempt to understand it. So I want to pose a question to you that you that you pose in in different ways to Turing and Gödel or you have them contemplate in the novel um, and I'll say it this way you know in your mind does the fact that one plus one equals two have anything to do with God 
Um, are you asking me that question? Yeah, I'm asking you that question. <laughs> well, I'm asking you how I can, you think about that. It's, I, um, oh, you're tough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that it raises, if I were to ever uh, lean towards spiritual thinking or religious thinking, it would be in that way. It would be, why is it um, that that there is this abstract mathematics that guides the universe? Um, the, the universe is remarkable because we can understand it. That's what's remarkable. All the other things are remarkable too, hmm. but it's really, really astounding that these little creatures on this little planet that seem totally insignificant in the middle of nowhere, we're not special, we're not in a special place can look back over the 14 billion year history of the universe and understand so much um, and in such a short time. So I think that that is where I would get a sense again of meaning and of purpose and of beauty and of being integrated with the universe so that it doesn't feel um, hopeless and meaningless. Um, Now, I don't personally invoke a God to do that, but I can't say that mathematics would disprove the existence of God either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just one of those things where over and over again you come to that point where some people will make that leap and say, I believe that God initiated this and then stepped away and the rest was this beautiful mathematical unfolding. Mm-hmm. And others will say, well, as far back as it goes, it seems to be these mathematical structures and I don't feel a need to conjure up any other entity. Right. And I think I fall into that camp um, and without feeling, again, despair or dissatisfaction. Um, and, um, and yet I understand why other people make the other jump. I sense that, that what you know about mathematics and the, th- the kinds of um, ideas that you spend your life with do leave you with a real nagging question about human freedom, about mm. free will. Absolutely. Talk to me about that. <laughs> Um, I think it's a difficult question uh, to understand what it means to have free will if we are um, completely determined by the laws of physics. And even if we're not, because there are things, for instance, in quantum mechanics, which is the theory of physics on the highest energy scales, um, which imply that there's some kind of quantum randomness so that we're not completely determined. But randomness doesn't really help me either. So okay. either I'm like um, I'm It doesn't like suggest to you that there's space for human decisions and for people I don't to change the way things work, though? No? I don't see how it does. Okay. You know, it's so – it just becomes – you know, if, if something randomly falls in a certain way, how is that a, a gesture of will? So it's it's either will has to do with determinism. My will strictly determines an outcome or it doesn't. So it's very hard. There is no clear way, I don't think, of making sense of um, an idea of free will in a pinball game of strict determinism or in a game which has elements of random chance that are just sort of thrown in. Where does my will come in there? So um, it doesn't mean that there isn't a free will. I've often said maybe someday we'll just discover something. I mean, quantum mechanics was a surprise. General relativity was a surprise. The idea of curved space-time. Right. There are limits to mathematics. All of these great discoveries were great surprises, and we shouldn't uh, decide ahead of time what is or isn't true. Um, so it might be that this convincing feeling I have that I'm executing free will is actually because I'm observing something that is there. I just can't understand how it's there. 
or it's a total illusion. It's just an illusion. It's a very, very convincing an illusion, you know, convincing illusion, but it, it's an illusion all the same. Right. But, it, it, you know, then I wonder, I, I know I, I, I was pushing at this a minute ago, and, <laughs> you know, then I wonder whether when you are, um, when you are writing beautiful language, um, writing fiction, um, you know, drawing pictures, um, listening to music, you know, whether, whether those things don't, again, convey a reality as well. I mean, you say, so for you as a scientist, it, you said this convincing feeling, you simply mm-hmm. can't, you can't take that as seriously as a, as a calculation that you can prove. No matter no, what. No, I can't. And, mm-hmm. and no matter what, you know, I, our convincing feeling is that time is absolute. It is a very convincing feeling yeah, that time right. is absolute. You know, right. Our convincing feeling is that there should be no limit to how fast you can travel. You just go faster and faster and faster. Yeah. We're, 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 our convincing feelings are based on our experiences because of the size that we are, literally, um, the speed at which we move, the fact that we evolved on a planet under a particular star. So our eyes, for instance, are peak in their perception at yellow, which is the wave band that the sun peaks at. And so it's not an accident that our perceptions and our physical environment are connected. And so we're limited also by that. That makes our intuitions excellent for ordinary things, for ordinary life. And that's how we evolved. That's how our brains evolved and our perceptions evolved, was to respond to things like the sun and the earth and these scales. And if we were quantum particles, we would think quantum mechanics was totally intuitive. And it's not intuitive <laughs> for anybody else. But okay. we would think that things fluctuating in and out of existence or, or not being certain in, in, in their, you know, whether they're particles or waves or these kinds of strange things that come out of quantum theory um, would seem absolutely natural. And what would seem really bizarre is the kind of rigid, clear-cut world that, that we live in. So I guess my answer would be that our intuitions are based on our minds. Our minds are based on our neural structures. Our neural structures evolved on a planet under a sun with very specific conditions. So we reflect the physical world that we um, evolved from. So, so I guess the problem yeah. is that our intuitions are, are good. Our intuitions yeah. are good for a lot of things, and that's why they're good. It's and not be- a miracle. And so, I mean, as you have um, come to see things this way through your work as a scientist? I mean, do, do you live differently because of that? Do you raise your children differently because of that? Or is it just a puzzle that you hold, that you carry forward? Oh, about free will. Yeah. The question about free will. Uh-huh. Um, I, free, free will... Um, how, yes, okay, let me try again. So, um, the lack... My, if, if I conclude that there's no free will, it doesn't mean that I should go uh, run amok in the streets. Um, it doesn't. It just doesn't follow to me as a logical possibility. I mean, I'm no more free to make that choice than I am to make any other choice. <laughs> um, and so, there's a practical notion of, of responsibility or civic uh, uh, free will that we uphold when we prosecute somebody or when we hold juries or when we right, pursue justice right. that I completely think is a practical notion that we should continue to pursue. And it doesn't make sense to say people will run through the streets because if that's what they're going to do, then they're no more free to do that than we were to do otherwise. It's not one of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it, it's not like I can choose <laughs> to be irresponsible or responsible because I'm I'm confused about free will. That's right. being okay. even more confused than me. <laughs> <laughs> if you think you can choose to behave irresponsibly because free will doesn't exist, you are even more confused than I am about the existence of free will. <laughs> okay. Well, well, maybe I don't think this is an easier question, but maybe this question is maybe at another level because another another of these big existential questions that I think runs through your ruminations about Gödel and Turing and the nature of truth and what we can know and what's real um, is is there any is there any point to all this 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 great question about purpose and so mm-hmm. you know again I want to ask you as from what you know as a scientist um, how do you think about is there purpose to the universe or or to our lives even if we don't have free will I don't well I, I certainly think that both Turing and Gödel are examples of people living out their purpose. Mm. Even though they came to tragic ends, um, those were people who were committed really um, to meaningful um, um, pursuits. And if you look at Turing, for instance, he was honest to the end. He really believed in in, in being blunt and truthful. He, he couldn't pretend. He couldn't be a fake. He hated this idea of fakes and phonies. And he couldn't pretend to be somebody he wasn't. He couldn't pretend to be heterosexual, even if it meant um, imprisonment or, right. or, or lethal poisoning. Um, and there is a person who, even though he might not have believed in free will, still be behaved in a way that I think most people would hold up as being um, responsible, responsible for himself and um, and believing in truth. And um, and Gödel also, even though he went very astray in, in his sort of compulsions and his paranoia and his um, imaginings, was very committed to being truthful in a sense, to really following logic where it led him and to not um, deceiving himself or taking an easier path. And so I think both of those are admirable examples of people living up to their innate purpose. And they are... Um they were brilliant human beings who, you know, actually contributed knowledge that we st- that is valuable even today. Um, I mean, especially Turing. I think we all live every single day with something that he helped make possible. Mm. And yet they both essentially committed suicide. Um, mm-hmm. and they did both commit yeah, suicide, they both, essentially. It's yeah, true. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of a vague kind of suicide, vague, but they yeah. did. But, um, and yet... You know, the, even the way they the way they died and the the messiness of their of their lives as human beings, um, the difficulties of that is is also kind of a testament to the strangeness of life and and in some way the you know the ultimate failure of logic as a complete answer to this mm-hmm. other great existential question of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it was really Gödel who was who was most. Um, led down that path by pursuing logic to its end. He couldn't ever give up any bit of minutia because he had to go through every little step of every little thought process. Mm-hmm. And um, he definitely struggled with his ordinary life um, and committed suicide by self-starvation, really. Um, I describe it, I think, as uh, two competing forces. One is the the will to live and one is the will to die. And um, it's sort of this constant balance between hypochondria and hurting himself right. with this abstemious, obsessive behavior. Um, and um, so you could look at him and say he could not get 
out of logic what he needed to um, to be happier or more content in the world. And maybe that's true. Um, and maybe some of the greatest minds um, are not the ones who are the happiest mm-hmm. and the most comfortable, who choose the easiest, most middle-class existence. I mean, we see that time and time again that the heroes that we look back on made very painful, difficult choices, gave up physical comforts, gave up oftentimes wealth and other things in order to pursue something that they believed in. And um, and maybe that was Gödel. He just pursued what he believed in to the end, um, even if none of us could understand where he went with that. Turing, on the other hand, I think was really um, betrayed by the culture that he helped to save. And so yeah. his case, I think, is different. I don't think Turing died because he was insane. He was not insane. I don't think Turing um, committed suicide because he was unable to cope with his uh, mathematical notions. Mm-hmm. His mathematical notions being much more practical were actually quite healthy. And he was functioning in some ways um, internally quite happily. Where he was not functioning that well was in his relationship to the society around him, mm-hmm. which rejected his um, homosexuality um, to the point of um, sentencing him to either imprisonment or, or hormonal castration yeah. and um, giving him two years of hormone treatments, which left him physically obese and depressed. So I think that his fight was not an internal struggle. It was it was really an external struggle. And I guess again, I'm I'm curious about you know where you come out on that. And in those those are two extreme stories. And and I do want to say that although there's real tragedy in them, um, I do I think you present them in a very human light. And and we also see what was wonderful about these these human beings <laughs> and what they brought into the world. You know, so I don't want to say that you know here here are these stories just of tragedy. Right. But I, but, you know, I think just, that's yeah. I mean, a more well, kind of mundane question is, you know, mm-hmm. how does the messiness of just of, of experience, you know, of all of us, you know, not not just our what we can know, but just how life unfolds, how does that impinge on kind of the ultimate reality of what we can know and achieve through logic and through science? Well, I think that's a um, I think that's a difficult question. I think that I myself would. Um, would argue that we should never turn away from what nature has to show us, that we should never um, pretend we don't see it because it's too difficult to confront it. And I guess that's something that I don't understand about um, other attitudes that want to disregard certain discoveries because they don't gel with their beliefs. And one of the painful but beautiful things about being a scientist is being able to say it doesn't matter what I believe. I might believe that the universe is a certain age, but if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And there's something really, I think, thrilling about about being committed to that. Um, And so in my own life, I don't feel um, that that uh, causes me problems. I mean, I've also, in a lot of ways, made easier choices than my two heroes who I wrote about. Right. I, um, I do have children. They, they did not have children. I do have um, uh, a certain sense of, of having a, a physical comfort around me that they don't have or didn't mm-hmm. have. Or, and, um, and in a way, I'm a much more connected person than either of those two people, even though I still... Um, have some of the affinities that they have. Um, maybe that means that I'll never go as far as they went in, in, in my own discoveries. I hope that's not the case, but I can imagine maybe it will be. And um, and maybe there is a trade-off. Maybe sometimes you just have to abandon everything and, mm. and pursue nothing but that. I'd like to think that um, if I'm lucky, 
I'll just get better at honing in on the jugular of things so that I can, I can still make progress and discoveries as a scientist or um, have epiphanies as a writer. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, I guess we all just have to find that, that particular balance. You know, um, reading your, your book about two scientists kind of led me on this path of reading other biographies of scientists. So I've been reading <laughs> James Glick's biography of Newton, another oh, he's a great writer. very complicated character also. <laughs> um, and, and something that, that's, that that reminds me of, I, I, I you know, discover this again and again. I remember discovering this when we delved into Einstein is, um, you know, how what Newton discovered you know, it wasn't just important. It absolutely changed the way people thought about the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about, like, you know, what are you working on right now um, that's probably not accessible to most of us? You know, we don't even know that these kinds of discussions are taking place. Or what are you working on that that also, you know, starts to reshape the way you see the world around you and um, the way you move through it? Well, it's funny. People have often asked me when I've been describing the work that I'm doing, they'll say, well, who, why should I care about that? You know, mm-hmm. and it's a fair question. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. should I really care about that? I'm telling something about extra dimensions and maybe the universe isn't three-dimensional, but maybe there are extra spatial dimensions that for some reason we're not aware of, um, but that uh, have strong implications for how the universe is, is, is growing and evolving. Um, and I've been working on these kinds of ideas um, a lot lately and um, whether space is infinite or, or if it's finite and if these extra dimensions are also finite and they're kind of curled up onto themselves. And it is very abstract. We could do a whole show hammering <laughs> yeah. that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But supposing we grasp the notion of, of multidimensional space and spaces that are finite, people say, why should I care about that? You know, my, my taxes are high. <laughs> war in Iraq? And these are fair questions, but um, my feeling is that it changes the world in such a fundamental way. We cannot begin to comprehend the consequences of living in a world after we know certain things about it. I think we cannot imagine the mindset of somebody pre-Copernicus when we thought that the earth was the center of, of the universe and that the sun and all the celestial bodies orbited us. And I think that once you make that shift that we are not at the center of the solar system. It's really not that huge a discovery in retrospect. In retrospect, so we orbit around the sun, and we take this to be commonplace, and there's lots mm-hmm. of planets in our solar system, and the sun is just one star out of billions or hundreds of billions in our galaxy, and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. And we become, you know, little dust motes in the scheme of things. That shift is so colossal in terms of what it did, I think, to our world, our global culture, our worldview, that I can't begin to draw simple lines to say this is what happened because of it or that's what happened because of it. We see ourselves differently and then we see the whole world differently and we begin to think about meaning and and all of these questions that you've, you've brought up completely differently than we did before. And um, I feel the same way if we discover that the universe is finite or if we discover that there are additional spatial dimensions. These things will impact us, I think, in ways that we can't just draw simple cause and effect arrows. And I mean, does it make you react to, to simple things differently in your life? Because you are closer to, you know, that cutting edge of knowledge right now. Well, I think I will often look at what people... Um, feel is very important and not identify with what they think is very important. (laughs) 
Um, you know, I, I, I think that's probably true. I have a hard time becoming obsessed with internal um, social norms, how you're supposed to dress or wear your tie or okay. <laughs> who's supposed to. You know, for me, it's so absurd because it's so small and it's so this funny thing that this one species is acting out on this tiny planet and this huge, vast cosmos. <laughs> so I think it is sometimes hard for me to participate in certain values that I think other people have. <laughs> um, so in that sense, yeah, I guess there is a shift of what I think is significant and what I think isn't. And if I, if I try to look at that closely, I would say the split is things that are totally constructed by human beings I have a hard time taking seriously hmm. and things that seem to be um, uh, uh, natural phenomena that happen universally I seem to take more seriously well, give um, me or an feel is more significant. I mean, I think sometimes it's hard to draw the line. Give me an example mm-hmm. of something for you that would be totally humanly constructed and then, and then the other. Um, well, let's see. <laughs> Aside from dress codes. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, actually, this is going to sound really dangerous, but um, even things like um, who we elect as an official in our government, of course, I take very seriously our, our, our voting process and I'm, you know, very try to be politically conscious. But f- sometimes when I think about it, I have to laugh that we're all just agreeing to um, respect this uh, agreement that this person has been elected for something. And that is really a totally human construct. Like we could turn around tomorrow and all choose to behave differently. We're animals that organize in a certain way. And I think it is funny to see us behave as animals who are organizing in a certain way sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I completely dismiss it or don't take it seriously. But I think a lot of the things we are acting out um, um, are these uh, animalistic things that are that 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 are consequences of of our um, sort of um, what's the word? Are not just innate, but kind of um, our instincts and. and they aren't, in some sense, as meaningful to me as the things that will live on after our species um, comes and goes. Does that make any sense? No, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. It's, it's perspective that you bring, mm-hmm. that you have. Yeah. It's different. That's a bit larger. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> cosmic. And it doesn't mean that, I, that I'm dismissing things as unimportant either. You know, I take mm-hmm. very seriously what's going on in the world right now, and I'm really pained by what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. But my perspective is to look at it as just... As, as animals acting out ruthless instincts and unable to control themselves, even though other people think that they're being very heady and intellectual. So, I mean, I, I do believe, and I, I mean, I think I know this, that, that human beings have this longing to, that something deep is met in human beings in, in a sense of being part of lo- something larger than oneself, being part of something big. Um, mm-hmm. And, well, um, I think we are part of something larger than ourselves. Right, I, I think, think we you, know yeah. that for sure. <laughs> and it's a remarkable thing to know that for sure. We we definitely are made up of material that was synthesized in the cores of stars, a previous generation of stars. I mean, we literally are made up of something larger than us. You know, we come from a very specific series of events in this universe mm-hmm. um, that if they hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. But I think some people might listen to to this and feel um, that this that if you know that if you really internalize this that that 
possibly everything is predetermined, that, that we, in fact, are not free in any way, um, that we are behaving like animals even when we think we're at our most civilized, you know, that, that, li- that life would somehow be robbed of joy and hope and transcendence. Mm-hmm. I don't experience you as a person without joy, hope, and transcendence. No. But I mean, I, I don't feel that way at all. I have a, a 15-month-old daughter and a four-year-old son, and um, I the overwhelming feelings I have for them, even if I believe that they're instinct, do not fade one bit because of that. It matters to me not at all that um, I have evolved to feel that way. It doesn't take anything away from me whatsoever. That feeling is as real, as strong, as beautiful, as meaningful um, as it is for somebody who believes otherwise. Mm. And I've never really understood the argument that it takes the shine off of things, when for me it really doesn't take the shine off of things. Um, For instance, let's say somebody said that they had a belief system in which it was simply posited that carbon came out of, I don't know, a blue sky one day. That wouldn't make me feel any more meaning about who I was in the world. It feels much richer to me to imagine that a a, a cold, empty cosmos collapses with stars and stars burn and shine and they make carbon in their cores and then they throw them out again and that carbon collects and... And, and forms another planet and another star and, and, and nucleosynth- um, amino acids evolve and, and then human beings arise. I mean, that's to me a really beautiful narrative. Mm. And, um, and I don't feel that I lose any of those rich experiences by following it. Mm. It seems to me that there's so much um, beguiling kind of mystery in science right now. I mean, um, even language like dark, Dark matter. What is it? It's dark matter. Dark. What's the other? We can be pretty corny too. You know? Well, know, There's all kinds but, of acronyms. Right, right. right. But it's so. I mean, it's certainly. It's it. It's it is very very mysterious. Mm-hmm. Whether that whether that implies, you know, the way whether that's the same way um, religious people talk about mystery or not. There's real mm-hmm. mystery in it. Isn't yeah. that right? I mean. Well, I think um, I think the the secret you are uncovering is that scientists often share a very childlike wonder for the world, and so a lot of the language that we invent about the universe reflects um, that kind of childlike experience. So there is really, um, at some level, that that feeling of excitement over. Um, over learning about the universe and and uh, and wanting it to sound a certain way, you know, <laughs> wanting the language to reflect the the mystery and um, and the magnitude of um, of what we're learning. So um, so I think that's what you're picking up on. And even I mean, the more we learn, and as you said, we know so much, but there's so much. You you also realize how much we have yet to discover. That's right. I, I don't know that it will ever end. I mean, I think if we really believe that we will know everything and that scientists will be out of work, that would be a kind of depressing for me too. <laughs> and on the other hand, if I really think I'm pursuing real answers to questions, you might hope that you come to the end one day. And there's there's a sort of funny balance in, in, in your own desires for things. You want to make great discoveries, but somehow you don't want the mysteries to ever end. You know, it's like a great book. You don't ever want to come to the end. Right, right. And um, we might never come to the end. Maybe we'll keep learning things, real things, making strides, but we will find more behind that one point or, or, or that, that last you know, sort of dark mist and we'll learn more beyond that. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone really knows uh, how that will pan out. I just want to ask you a couple more questions. I know we need to finish. Sure. But I know that you're now working on, um, on uh, the idea of whether the universe is infinite or finite. 
and somewhat against the grain, um, you are pondering whether the universe is finite. Explain that to me. And what well, that's that question you say you get asked. What, what, what might uh-huh. that matter to uh, any of the rest of us? Right. Well, um, uh, there are a handful of people for several years ago who started getting interested in this around, around the world. And I, I think it's, um, it sort of sounds less outlandish now than it used to. I think people more and more realize that it's a tenable possibility that the universe um, is finite. And um, we just don't know the answer to that question. And what it would mean is, is it's similar to the idea of the earth. If you're, if you're standing, as I am in New York City, and you walk in a straight line... And then you swim in a straight line and then you walk again and swim again. You keep going in a straight line as far as you possibly can go. You will end up coming back to New York City because the earth <laughs> okay. is, is not infinite. It is also uh, not uh, – uh, it doesn't have an edge off of which you would just sort of fall off. So, um, so the earth is compact, finite, and edgeless. And we're imagining something like this for the entire three-dimensional space in which we live. It's a little harder to visualize because people want to bend it into four dimensions and think of it as a surface. And it gets a little visually confusing. Mm-hmm. But instead of trying to do all of that, stand outside the universe looking in on it, which you can never do. I think it's better to imagine being in the universe. And like um, in the Earth example, walking around the Earth, if you imagine getting into a rocket and flying out into space and never turning left or right, traveling in as straight a line as you possibly can in your rocket ship, Eventually, if the universe is finite, it's conceivable you will come back to where you started. Because it would be curved. It would be curved. It's it's even beyond it's being curved and wrapping back on itself, just like the Uh Earth. The Earth isn't just curved Mm because it could be curved and lumpy and still have an edge. Mm -hmm. It could be curved and lumpy and still be infinite. But it actually wraps back onto itself. Mm -hmm. I can travel in lots of different directions and still come back to New York City. (laughs) <laughs> I can go, oh, I can, you know, I could go to Canada okay. and I'd still come back to New York City. <laughs> and so in space time, it might be something like that. I travel on a rocket ship in several different directions and, and, and I find myself coming back to where I started. I think I left the Earth behind me. I see it go away behind me. And as I approach some planet in front of me, I realize, whoa, that's the Earth again. <laughs> and... Um, and this idea is rooted in, um, in, as we talked about, the mathematics of, of topology. Um, and I haven't actually been working on that so much lately because I, I've turned a little bit more to the extra dimensions, although it's a very similar idea. If extra dimensions are also wrapped up in finite, we're also using topology to understand their shape and the consequences their shape might have on the shape of the large um, universe that we, we observe. So I'm trying to understand now... If we can know about the universe being finite or infinite by looking at the small dimensions. Um, so it's a kind of indirect approach. And you've made this interesting observation that, that uh, many, several times in history when science has, um, has uh, acknowledged limits, right? You know, you'd be putting finitude to infinity, that that in mm-hmm. fact has made great leaps forward possible. Yes, it's a funny thing. It doesn't mean that we throw up our hands and say we can't know anything. You know, mathematics is limits. Oh, no, we don't do mathematics anymore or, or the speed of light is a fundamental limit. We, we stop doing physics. It's really been exactly the opposite. Mathematics has limits and somehow that leads people to invent a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the speed of light has a finite limit, which is what Einstein proposed, and he invents special relativity and eventually a theory of curved space-time based on this observation. So it opens up the, this this huge um, 
way of thinking about the world when we kind of accept our limits and and just move on. Um, and quantum mechanics was the other example where it, quantum mechanics implies a fundamental uncertainty in what we can know about physical reality. And by accepting this, we make these enormous discoveries. Um, right. so, um, so I think similarly, if we come to accept that maybe the universe isn't infinite. I mean, Einstein had this funny thing, which I'm probably overusing because I've said a bunch of times, but he said only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And then he said, I'm not so sure about the universe. So um, <laughs> he knew that it was conceivable that the universe wasn't infinite, but he wasn't sure how to go about it. And that mathematics didn't come until later. And um, and only later did we understand how to kind of actually handle it. And if we were to discover that the universe was finite, I think it, it would again be something like uh, like what happened with Copernicus, or like understanding that there's there was a big bang. I think it's hard for us to remember what it was like before the discovery of the big bang itself. That's just such a part of our worldview now. That there was a beginning point. But there was a beginning that mm-hmm. the universe hasn't always been here. That it isn't permanent mm-hmm. and and um, unending and. Um, unalterable, and you know, and there's such we're talking. You're, you're talking at such a lofty level, but there's such interesting resonance with just you know maybe these tawdry intuitions that we that we have. But I mean, you know, that kind of what what we can know about life and that limits also are liberating um, at this mm-hmm. kind of uh, daily level that we inhabit. Well, I also I don't want to be too dismissive of intuitions. I mm-hmm. say every physicist goes on their intuition. They just don't say that their intuition is is the be all and the end all. They use their intuition, and then sometimes they find out they're wrong. Mm-hmm. You accept that and you move on, you know. Yeah. And um, and that's half the fun. It's kind of say, wow, it's really not what I expected. Um, but that's part of the honesty of 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 what you're doing as a scientist is you're not imposing your beliefs on the world. You might use them to guide you, just like we all do our best, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the best to use our intuitions to guide us. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you have to be able to, to, you know, throw your hands up and say when you're wrong. Right. And I just want to come back just finally to um, something that, uh, th- this is a nuance of, we, we spoke at the very beginning about Kurt Gödel, this uh, scientist who, you, one of the two scientists you wrote about in your novel. And, um, so, so we just bear with me as I try to. So sure. he he so he said he said there are things that are true that mathematics there are things that mathematics cannot prove. They might still be true, but the idea was you would have to go outside mathematics to know that. Um, mm-hmm. And y- y- you use phrases like you know that we can't see them until we step out. In fact, we can't see the logic of them until we step outside the logical framework. You said something like. We have to look at them out of the corner of our eye. Mm-hmm. And to me, that again seems so resonant with, um, with life as I know it. And I just, you know, I wonder how, if, if, if that's a kind of idea that you also find you can translate into other aspects of knowledge and experience. Well, I definitely think um, it's the reason the book was structured as a novel. If you look at the book, I try to stick as close to fact as possible. It's not the facts that I'm changing. It's the approach to the facts, and it's a sort of confession that no matter how I list these facts, I am somehow not able to get at the truth. The truth doesn't just drop out like a theorem if I follow certain logical steps. Mm. And, um, and I think it's really the whole idea of structuring the book that way. And I, and I think um, maybe it's saying something also about maybe my own approach to science, no matter how much I follow these logical steps, no matter how much I make 
real discoveries that will be unambiguous, I hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there, in some sense, my approach to the truth in the, in the, in the bigger uh, a sense of the meaning of the word um, will always be a little bit out of the corner of my eye, <laughs> mm-hmm. what it, or, or the visceral experience of what it really means or um, uh, what the implications are. Mm-hmm. And so I did want the reader to have this sense that there are no true things really out except for things as crisp as 1 plus 1 equals 2 that are unambiguously true. Right. <laughs> and, um, and yet we, we know we're getting closer to the truth even though we can't always prove it. Mm. That's great. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, oh, thank you so much. I did too. Thank you. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to put this on the air until after the first of the year, but we'll be in touch with you about that. Okay, sure. Are you? Is this edited um, down? Yeah, yeah, it's edited down for an okay. hour of radio. Um, is there anything that you wanted to to go back over that we might have no, no. been clumsy on? No, it was great. Okay, it, good. It, it, we do, okay. It's a real conversation, it is, and yeah. it, was, it was wonderful. Okay, you do great mm-hmm. research. I'm really impressed with how well you researched oh, it. So. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I love these ideas. And again, I just really loved your book, and I'm going to give it a big, big recommendation. Um, oh, thanks so much. And really um, we'll be in touch. And we may have some other questions even about, you know, we layer the show with readings and music, and we might even mm-hmm. ask your advice about some of that closer to the time. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so great. thanks for making the time, and thanks for your work. Yeah, it was good to talk, and I'll be sure to listen to the show. Okay, now. seven o'clock, seven o'clock Saturday morning. That's okay, when it's on in New York City. I'm, I'm up, sadly. I'm up. Well, I know. Actually, we have a lot of listeners with young children at that time. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, it's on funny. Sunday night too in New York. Yeah, it's on oh, Sunday night it? at ten. Oh, okay, it's also on okay. Saturday afternoon at three, but it's on all different places. Yeah. Thank I'm more you. likely to be awake at seven than at ten at night. Okay, yeah. thanks, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.